welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. This is your host, Joe Boris, and I'm here with Ben Shapiro. Not that one. This Ben Shapiro is from Rocky Mountain Institute. And uh, Rocky Mountain Institute, of course, is a kind of a think tank. They do a lot of research, a lot of data analysis on you know how we can kind of make the world a better place and reshape things. And Ben specifically is part of their carbon-free mobility program and uh, is trying to basically accelerate the electrification and the move towards EVs in the United States. Does that sound about right, Ben? Yeah, thank you, Joe. Appreciate you having me on today. And uh, exactly, exactly what you've said. RMI is really focused on doing research and analysis to provide policymakers and other stakeholders with the tools and resources needed to decarbonize all sectors of the economy. And as, as many listeners will be familiar, both in the U.S. and globally, transportation constitutes one of the largest sources uh, of our global emissions. So our team in particular, the carbon-free mobility team, which you've mentioned, is specifically focused on that part of the economy and doing research and conducting analysis, convening different stakeholders, really with this driving purpose of trying to drive carbon out of that sector. And we do a lot of work within that on electric vehicles, but we also work with other colleagues uh, on sort of urban form and trying to remake our cities and find better ways to move people rather than vehicles around. So uh, trying to sort of tackle this from many different angles. You know, that's such a really good point. And I, I didn't intend to talk about this. So if it seems a little bit off the cuff and outside of what we prepared for, I do apologize. But, you know, you look at Chicago and you look at Lakeshore Drive and Millennium Park and what that looked like 25 years ago when there were still cars all over the place and there were still roads there. And the city of Chicago really reclaimed that space and made it for pedestrians and for cyclists and really greened that space. You're starting to see some of that in Boston as well, where they're kind of removing the highway system or at least moving it underground and kind of creating these green spaces, these pedestrian spaces. Uh, is, is that sort of something that comes out from your work? And what are some of the benefits to some of the stakeholders that kind of that move away from just, you know, interstates and more lanes and more lanes would get? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can't say that I'm all that familiar with what's taking place on that front in Chicago or Boston, but Generally, there's a lot of good work going on and increasing recognition that the way in which we've set up our cities and our sort of built environment historically is not particularly efficient when we think about where people need to go, why they need to go there, how they spend their time and commutes and and that sort of thing. There are also some really important equity considerations, given that the way in which we've set up the system historically often puts many of our transportation corridors and routes through some of the historically disadvantaged communities, lower income communities and communities of color. And so being able to rethink that with more green space, more sort of active transportation is really beneficial from a climate as well as from an equity perspective. I'll also just say a lot of that work is actually done more by colleagues of of mine who are part of what we call our urban transformation team. And we can put you in touch with some of them to get deeper into that. I won't claim to be an expert on, on that side of the house. My team is generally a bit more focused on transportation electrification, the policies, the infrastructure that need to be put in place to really support quite a massive scale up of the electrification of our vehicles. But 
again, the other side of that, which I think is really important, is recognizing that it's not sufficient to just electrify all the vehicles. We want to also think about, do we need all those vehicles? And can we do things differently at a fundamental level so that we can, again, sort of move people rather than moving just vehicles? Well, that's a great point, right? Because ultimately, you know, there's this great shot. It's a great photo that um, was put out by the city of Vancouver. They showed 48 cars and you know and they said this is how many electric cars it takes or this is how many cars it takes to move 48 people to work then they showed 48 cars and the same 48 people it says this is how many electric cars it takes to move these people and then it showed 48 cars and 40 people says this is how many autonomous cars it takes to move people and then it showed like one bus that took up like you know an eighth of the space and did everything and they said you know this is really what we want to be going for so it sounds like you're, you're kind of thinking along those lines as well as how do we move people rather than move cars and the throughput is about getting the most people where they need to go rather than the most cars where they need to go do you find that your job has changed significantly since covid happened well, I think that as with most sectors of the economy, it's been sort of the, the Wild West, no one quite sure what to expect in the early days of the pandemic. And, and now things are starting to normalize. A lot of travel patterns are, are coming back, you know, some important differences. But in a short answer, yes, certainly. But I think that we're all sort of learning what the new, quote unquote, new normal looks like. You know, one of the, the outcomes here, and this is not specific to electric vehicles, but as, as you're very well familiar the whole supply chain considerations that are affecting many sectors of the economy are very much affecting auto manufacturing. And so while there is increasing demand for vehicles in part because less people are, are motivated to take public transportation given COVID concerns, there's also quite a bottleneck in terms of the supply and there are some really significant cost implications. Again, not specific to EVs, but relevant for all private auto purchases. That pressure to kind of escape the public transportation we saw a lot of that in Chicago. I knew people that didn't even own a car. They would take the, you know, they would take the L everywhere. They would take the Metro where they needed to go. And once COVID started, they didn't feel comfortable with that anymore. So they went and bought a car that now I don't even know if they're still driving it or if it lives parked 99% of the time. What do you say to people who are looking at public transit in that way and who are looking at you know, what is objectively a cleaner way of getting around, what do you say to them when, when they mention those, that kind of COVID concern, or is that something that was relevant two years ago and now we're starting to just not see that anymore? No, I think it's very much relevant today. I don't know that I have a, a, a great response directly to people. I mean, I think that everyone needs to make their own personal decisions about their level of comfort when it comes to public health and, you know, the, the very unprecedented times in which we find ourselves. But with that said, I personally think that transportation, uh, public transportation that is, is going to continue to be a really bedrock and important part of our broader transportation systems and hope that people will both continue to and, and sort of increase their usage of, of those systems. Now, just in full transparency, I personally take public transit a lot less than I did a couple of years ago, largely because I'm very fortunate in that I am able to mostly work remotely now. So, you know, my main use case was, was uh, commuting into the office, which I now do much less frequently. So I just recognize that for a lot of people, things have changed fundamentally, but hope that we can still you know, take advantage of these systems and, and invest in these systems to make sure that we're still providing opportunities. You know, I'll, I'll go back to the equity angle here. 
it's really nice to have the option to say, oh, I didn't have a car. I'm going to go buy one because I'm kind of afraid right. to take public transit. Right, now, right. A lot of people simply don't have that option. And so whether they're comfortable with it or not, they, they uh, are left without much choice in terms of having to still ride the bus or ride the train. But I think that generally public transit agencies have, have taken the pandemic pretty seriously with mask requirements and with increased sanitation and so forth. So again, I'll just say I'm optimistic that people will sort of find new levels of comfort with those systems as we hopefully continue to work through and, and to some extent get past this pandemic. You know, this is why I really like talking to you. And, and when you and I first did this webinar about a week ago, and, and I just said, I, I got to get this guy on the show one-on-one because you say things like this that are so dense, right? Like there's, there is that sort of equality, social equity statement of like, oh, I have to go buy a car now, tra-la, tra-la. And that so many people don't have that option. They're stuck on the public transit. And then you make the other comment about transportation corridors historically cutting through disadvantaged neighborhoods and, you know, putting that air pollution and that noise pollution in those in those neighborhoods. From the point of view of electrification, it seems like those people who are most exposed to the carbon emissions and most exposed to the health health effects and health impacts of, you know, breathing in diesel particulates and things like that, that they stand to benefit the most from electrification. Is that something that that you're kind of finding as well with the research you're doing? Or maybe a better way to frame that is, how is the research that you're doing helping to identify who benefits and how they benefit from electrification? Yeah, great question or set of questions. There's a lot in there. So I guess the short answer is yes, we definitely believe that people and communities that have historically been underserved or even mistreated by the transportation system and and other parts of our sort of public infrastructure, if you will, do stand to benefit significantly from electrification. And that comes in a variety of different ways. One is, you know, if you are relatively low income and you drive an internal combustion engine vehicle, and are able to get access to an electric vehicle instead, you have the opportunity to have a pretty meaningful cost savings in terms of what you spend on the ongoing fuel and maintenance of your vehicle. Now, part of that relies on people having access to charging at home, which is not particularly straightforward in some communities if there's a larger proportion of people that live in multi-unit dwellings, for example. But suffice it to say, all else equal, which it certainly isn't, you know, there are cost savings that can be had from driving an EV. Another big benefit of transportation electrification is, you know, going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, a lot of the heaviest local air pollution from tailpikes takes place in communities that have, you know, that are historically disadvantaged. And that's because of, you know, location near ports and, and freight corridors. That's because of, you know, routes that go th- public transit routes that go through different parts of cities that have historically you know, had the more uh, larger lower income population or larger population of, of disadvantaged communities of people of color. So not necessarily just direct use of one's own vehicle to sort of reap the benefits, but as we electrify buses and as we electrify trucks that move our things around, there are some very direct and meaningful impacts that can, can be felt in these communities. So a couple of different flavors there. And then uh, another one that I'll just highlight briefly, we're also starting to to try to think more broadly kind of outside the box in terms of not just focusing on 
personal EV ownership. You know, we do plenty of work that's around passenger mobility and, and um, how to get people to be more comfortable with EVs and to put in place the infrastructure and the policies to support them and so forth. We recently did an interesting project in the state of Connecticut for the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority there, the electric utility regulator, who had a really interesting concept for trying to find ways where the electric utilities could put in place programs that would come up with innovative electric mobility options for low to moderate income residents in the state. So within that, and that's, that's a lot of words there, but within that, I think the thing to read is not just personal EVs, right? Increasingly, we see a lot of programs that provide larger incentives to buy an EV if you're below a certain income threshold, right? Or incentives <laughs> to put in place a level two EV charger at your home if you're able to do that. But again, this kind of goes back to the other side of what I keep talking about in terms of focusing on mobility as opposed to vehicle ownership. And so the work that we did for them was time to look at what are some other ways that we can provide electrified mobility? And so uh, a few of the things that we were looking into and making recommendations around were electrified car sharing. So we're starting to see more and more car sharing across the country. There are some pretty interesting programs where they're doing that with EVs and uh, all the benefits that can come from driving an EV without necessarily the burden of owning a car. I'm going on kind of at length here, but maybe I just briefly mention. No, no, no. I, it's very interesting because, you know, it, it, the idea of car ownership, home ownership, that's been fed to us in, in a lot of ways as you know part of this larger American dream. Right. And there is kind of a double edged sword there. You know, is is it beneficial to have a subscription model for everything? Is it not better to have people who actually can own something that it's theirs that they're not constantly paying to a big corporation and then you have that sort of you know argument pro worker pro employee kind of populist argument but then on the other side it seems like a tremendous waste of resources if you drive if you own a car and you drive it for even even if you're an, an extreme driver and you drive it 2 hours a day that's 22 hours a day that it's sitting still in a parking lot that it's taking up space and not benefiting you, it's not benefiting society. It's not benefiting anybody. So it does seem like an interesting. Yeah, not thing. to mention, not to mention all of the materials that go into making that car just to sit there oh. as an ornament on the street. A hundred percent. And then, the and then you know, you also have the the parking lots. You have, if you look at the amount of parking lots that are in a major city or in a in a suburb where you have to put this thing right, like ninety again, ninety percent of the time, most of those parking lots are pretty empty. And they're only full from, you know, a, a small percentage of the day. So I, I, there's a tremendous carbon cost to having all these cars out there. And I think the car sharing thing is interesting. I think the mobility as a service model is interesting. Have you, has anyone, whether it's this program in Connecticut or another program that you know of, have you seen some kind of program that would maybe partner with Lyft or Uber or some other kind of mobility company to not only focus on electrification, but also reduce the number of vehicles that are being owned on the road and enable lower income families, students, things like that, to access these mobility apps, you know, essentially free of charge or at a discounted rate. Well, beyond the electric car sharing programs that I've, that I've mentioned, and there are a, a good handful of these across the country now, and I think there's some momentum picking up. Directly to your question about the transportation network companies, the Lyfts and Ubers of the world, I believe that both of those, you know, they're by far the biggest fish in the pond. I believe that they both offer programs where their drivers can, can essentially lease or rent vehicles, including 
electric vehicle options, at least in some markets. Yes. But I don't know if programs specifically, you know, that's not focusing on what on the piece you're talking about in terms of reducing the number of cars overall. And so I think that's a relatively conventional program that's adding an electric option as opposed to focusing on producing vehicles. But it does make it easier. I mean, they are making it significantly easier for someone who is in a disadvantaged neighborhood or in a bad situation to say, look, we'll, we'll rent you the car so that you can go drive and start earning an income. And, you know, we'll effectively guarantee the rental and this and that. And I, I think that there is something there that is beneficial, that is opening doors for people. I don't, I agree with you. I don't know if it's quite the same thing. And what I'd be more interested in, I think, you know, and again, this isn't my industry. I don't know. You know, so I, I mean, you, you would be the guy to, to talk about this when, you know, when you talk about car sharing, are you talking about something like a zip car model where you have multiple people using the same car or are we talking about ride sharing? And I guess that's where my confusion is. Oh, I see. Yeah. Good, good clarification. So what I was talking about with car sharing, when I use that term, I do mean more of the, the model that has been popularized by Zipcar and other companies of that type where you have, and, and there are a few different ways in which this is done. Some of them have sort of fixed locations where the cars are, are left. You know, there are three spots at the Safeway down the, down the road, right? Others are uh, what they call floating model, where the cars can sort of be anywhere within a relatively large radius. So it's the idea is it's a little bit more like the, um, you know, the scooters that you see on the sidewalk that somebody <laughs> rides to where they, they want to go. And then they, they just park the car there and somebody else can pick it up. So that's what I was referencing. Yeah. Ride sharing with the Lyft and Uber model is, is different, although certainly can be electrified and increasingly is being electrified, especially in places like California and Oregon and states that have uh, regulatory requirements to do that. The one, one point I want to make here and maybe connect this discussion of the, the transportation network companies, some colleagues of mine, and I, I was not directly involved in this project, but some colleagues of mine did some interesting work in Los Angeles and released a study, I believe it was late last year, that was looking at transportation network companies, TNCs, again, the Lyfts and Ubers of the world. And they compared something like a million driving miles, so quite a large number of miles, with telematics data. So this is the, the data that tracks where the vehicle's going and you get a very good sense of how people travel and where they stop. So a bunch of telematics data from both traditional internal combustion engine vehicles being driven for these services, as well as electric vehicles being driven by these services. And one of the interesting findings, uh, and I think sort of concerning findings of the report was just how big of a disparity there is in terms of the charging infrastructure, the public charging infrastructure that's available in relatively lower income neighborhoods. So I can, I can send you a link to this report. There are some really pretty surprising graphics that show the Los Angeles area and, you know, mapping income over overlaid with charging infrastructure. And you really see this disinvestment in terms of the lower income neighborhoods from the public, public charging infrastructure perspective. And you can sort of think through that. What does that imply about people being able to drive electric miles instead of gasoline miles in these neighborhoods and the local air pollution that comes with that, in addition to the implied sort of lack of opportunity to, to capture the cost savings from driving an EV. Yeah. So now, I'll, I'll stop there, but interesting, interesting work. And again, sort of the equity angle that we're trying to, trying to really 
build into our work more fundamentally in all yeah. of our projects. You know, and, and it's interesting because I was I was talking to uh, Maya Dandridge at the NADA about this. You know, last year the city of Chicago invested, you know, however many million dollars it was, and ninety percent of the electric chargers were of the public electric charging stations were put in the two wealthiest zip codes of Chicago. So there's definitely an issue. But one thing that I want to bring attention to now is when you talk about this telematics data and how you guys look at it and how you overlay that with you know air pollution information and respiratory health information, this isn't just something you guys are doing kind of in addition to your other work. This is really your core competency is looking at this data, looking at this massive amount of data and trying to figure out how and where you can pull these different levers and make the most positive impact. And the work that you're doing, you know, you're, you're a .org, you're essentially, a, a, you know, for, I think you guys are a nonprofit, but the work that you're doing is really about where can we intelligently pull these levers and flip these switches and make the most change and the greatest impact. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I think that's all correct. And, to confirm, yes, we are a nonprofit, although I would flag for listeners.org does not necessarily imply that. Given well, that right, right, right. But, you know, wait, <laughs> people but when can you hear... actually yeah. choose the suffix for their for their URLs. <laughs> so don't don't believe everything you read, I guess is the point there. But yes, nonprofit. And we, we certainly are focusing a lot in this space and using telematics data. But, you know, I think it's what you said is maybe more, more generally true about our work in that we're trying to find rich data sets and draw interesting conclusions that can help to inform better policy based on that data. So we certainly are using a lot of telematics to do that, but we use all sorts of data, both within our, our mobility-focused team and more broadly at the Institute. So uh, agree with all of that. There you go. Sorry, Joe, was there, was there another question in there? I'm trying to- uh, I don't, you know what, Ben, honestly, what you are talking about and the work that you do is so interesting to me. I could talk to you for hours just to kind of figure out you know, where everything is at and, and kind of where it needs to go. And I know we're kind of coming to the end of our time commitment here. So first of all, I really want to appreciate, you know, you taking the time to do this with us again after being on the show with us last week. But I do want to ask, you know, what are some of the big projects that you're working on that our listeners can kind of follow up with you, follow along? I don't know if Rocky Mountain Institute has a Instagram or something to tell people like, hey, go follow this. But you have some really good articles, some really neat insights on your website. And I know that you guys are always looking for donations and trying to get people to kind of support the work that you're doing. And it's, you know, it again, data driven. It's not necessarily political, but it is there is some politics involved in there because you are trying to move the policy. So what can people who are listening to this, what can they do to find out more about what you're doing and support what you're doing? Yeah, well, thanks, Joe. And again, appreciate being on here. So first of all, I just want to certainly say clearly that RMI, nonprofit, but also very much nonpartisan. So we want to inform good policymaking based on data and data-driven solutions, and also largely try to focus on market-based solutions so that we can sort of understand how are the business models that different organizations have today meeting our goals and, and how might they be amended to better meet those goals, right? And I can give you a couple examples of that. Yeah, please. Time. Yeah, um, please do. Sure, but maybe just just to finish here on your on your other question, we uh, certainly are always welcome to any philanthropic contributions, and it's a big part of how we are able to do the work that we do. You can probably the easiest way to find us is just at our website www.rmi.org. We are also active on uh, all of the 
typical social media platforms. Although I personally am pretty, pretty bad with social media. So <laughs> I won't, I won't go through the litany of what all the handles are, but we're pretty easy to find and encourage people to check us out and reach out if they have questions. In terms of the, the, you know, a couple examples here of what I'm talking about with the business models, a lot of the work that I personally have been focusing on recently is really thinking about the infrastructure that we need to charge all of the EVs. I think that in general, there's a, there's a pretty large misconception between how much infrastructure we really need to support the, the EVs that we think are coming and how quickly we're moving to actually put that in place. So to be more explicit, I don't think that we're moving fast enough in this space. We have these really ambitious goals about electrifying all the vehicles and new sales, you know, states like California that have uh, California and New York and I believe Washington at this point and a number of, of different progressive states have these requirements to sell a certain percentage of vehicles ratcheting all the way up to 100 for light duty vehicles in the next 10 or 15 years. But the infrastructure required to build to support those vehicles takes a, t- a lot of time to build. It costs money. And we're just simply not moving quickly enough sort of to get ahead of this wave. And so in terms of the business model piece, a big issue there is that the private companies who are providing charging services, it's not today a particularly profitable business model. And so from my perspective, that's a, a clear sort of market failure in that we need, we need this infrastructure. There are companies that are providing it and they're doing a good job, but there's not enough of a profit motive based on the economics today to really drive a huge wave towards, towards building out more infrastructure, not to mention a number of very important bottlenecks in terms of uh, working with electric utilities to get sufficient electrical capacity and working with policymakers to get support for this, all of the siting and land acquisition and a whole, a whole range of different issues that we all collectively need to work through. But in terms of the, the business model piece, I think that's one way in which we're trying to understand, you know, how can we best use data to show how the public sector can support what I think are going to be sort of the those who carry the lion's share of the burden here in the private sector, you know, we really want to catalyze markets to build out that infrastructure. So I'll stop there. There are many, many examples like that, but that's one that comes to mind. I have read, and I don't know how current or how accurate this is, but I have read that one of the biggest roadblocks to massive EV infrastructure investment from the private sector has been that in many states, and obviously in the United States, every state has its own little kingdom of laws, right? That in many states, it's actually quite difficult, if not outright illegal, to essentially upcharge for electricity. Do you feel like there's some legislation out there, you know, older legislation that was maybe written before the time of EVs, that could be modified to make it more profitable for some of these companies like, you know, your Shell and your Flying J and your BP to start putting in high speed chargers if they could, you know, make a little bit of extra money on it. Because I think that most people, you know, they might pay an extra 50 cents a minute or, you know, dollar a minute to get in and out of a a very fast location that is in the route of where they want to go rather than someplace that they maybe necessarily don't want to go. Yeah, well, in, in terms of the particular, you know, how, I think what you're getting at is how do you price the electricity? So there, there are different approaches and there are differences between states and what you can and can't do. So that is, right. that is correct. I think that I'm not sure that that would be the one that I would highlight as, you know, as big of an impediment as something like, and not to say that it isn't something we can work on to have better pricing and pricing transparency, 
but and and the Federal Highway Administration actually is is working on this to some extent currently. But I, I would say in terms of big structural impediments to the business model, what I'm driving at more is that if I go out, if you know Ben's charging service company goes out and builds a DC fast charging station in some area, but and I have to spend a million dollars to do it, let's just say nice round number. I probably don't have a very good ROI, return on investment for that for quite a while, unless that's an area that has quite a lot of traffic coming by it or has quite a lot of EV adoption or both. And so if we want to truly create a public charging infrastructure network that's going to serve all Americans and is going to have broad coverage, we have to figure out how do we get these charging companies to essentially bite the bullet and put in place infrastructure Right here, I'm talking mostly about, uh, about DC fast charging, but it's also relevant for some public level two charging. How do we get these companies to go to these locations and put in place the infrastructure, despite the fact that they're not going to make back their money for quite some time, if ever? And so, again, they're the market failure piece here that I'm, that I'm talking about. And so I think the clear answer there, at least at high level, is, okay, we need to support those companies with some sort of public, public support, whether that's direct funding or something else. But that's what I think we need to get ahead of from the business model perspective. And then, as I mentioned briefly, that's far from the only issue. You know, Even if the, the, these organizations want to go out and develop that site, there might not be sufficient electric utility capacity to bring power to the site. Or there might be local permitting issues involved in or permitting or zoning issues in developing that site. And so- And you have to do an environmental impact study for any site that you do. So now you have to worry about- you know, how are you affecting the migration patterns and everything else, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that of course, is not specific to, this is just development in general. Sure, right? sure. I, I, all I'm trying to highlight is like, there's so much, there's so much involved and it's not just as simple as, okay, here's money, go build a charging station, which I think is one of the criticisms of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks with, you know, Nevi and the $5 billion build out, we're going to put a fast chargers every 50 miles. It's like, well, it sounds great in concept, but to your point, there's a lot more to it than just building the charging stations. You have to build out the infrastructure, the charging, the zoning, somebody's got to be able to make something off of that in order to keep it viable. And I mean, even just in point of view of maintenance, right? It, it needs to at least be able to pay to keep itself running, even if it doesn't have an ROI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and for anyone not familiar, NEVI is the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program. This is this is part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Biden, I believe, last November. So this is a five billion dollar program to provide public fast charging along along highway corridors throughout the U.S. So I guess just briefly on that, agree with agree with what you said, Joe. With with that said, I do think it's important. I mean. While I wish we were doing more and more quickly, as I've said, it is, you know, you have to start somewhere. And this is by far the biggest investment from the from the federal government in the US in charging infrastructure ever, at least to my knowledge. I would be surprised if there's anything that comes close to this in the past. And while it may be imperfect and there are parts of it that various people would like to change, including myself, I think it is a, a very good start. It provides a good amount of kind of seed funding, I would almost say, to build a sort of critical backbone of, of public charging infrastructure. And part of this is, you know, a, a visibility piece, right? How often do you talk to someone about driving an EV? And the first thing they say is, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. But, you know, twice a year I drive to Phoenix and that's a long right. ways. 
And so I just, I need to keep my gas car, right? And I don't, won't get into it now. There are a whole, whole list of reasons why I don't, don't think that that's necessarily a very good reason not to get an EV instead of your internal combustion engine vehicle. But this program is in part trying to really address that concern, right? To provide confidence and, and get over what people often refer to as range anxiety mm-hmm. uh, with, their, with their EVs. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. We talk about this all the time. Uh, my friend Matt Teske and I, who is often a co-host on the show or, or a guest on the show, depending on the, what mood strikes and he calls himself one or the other. You know, we talk about the idea that even, you know, the EV signage that you see is like this little metal placard. It's got a thing, you know, but when you are driving down the road and you see gas stations and you see advertisement for gasoline and diesel products, it's a hundred foot high shell station or a hundred foot high, you know, Texaco, it lights up at night. You can see it for miles. And even if you don't need it, that constant marketing and advertising is reinforcing the confidence in that fuel choice. And when we're looking at electric vehicles and electricity as a fuel, you don't still see that. And I, this is just kind of me getting on my soapbox and I'm curious to hear your take on this. I think that until we have these same signage, these you know giant signs that say electrify America or say, you know, flow charging here, and they have the little price on it of, you know, it's 250 a minute to come charge here. I think until we have that, it, it's going to be really hard to get people to conceptualize that that electric fuel is available. I mean, here in the city of Chicago, we have hundreds of EV charging stations, quite a few more charging stations than we have gas pumps, but you can't see them. The most visible ones are the Tesla superchargers at Target, and they're in the back of the Target in the rear parking lot, and they're five and a half feet high. And unless you have that app that tells you they're there, there's no way that you could see them from the road. So I think that a lot of this confidence in the infrastructure just has to do with the fact that the infrastructure is itself physically small and doesn't advertise and make noise about itself. So I'm just curious about your take on my take. Yeah, I, I think that that's a good point. I, I, I'm also compelled to sort of point out something a little different, though, which is that, you know, we, it's it's so challenging for us to not just think of EVs as, you know, essentially a drop-in replacement for an internal combustion engine vehicle. Right, But right. realistically, we hope that people will do most of their charging not at DC fast chargers, at public direct current fast charging stations. I think those are going to be really important infrastructure. And this is what that NEVI program is all about. And I I certainly support that. But it's not, it's far from the cheapest way to charge. If you're able to charge overnight, if you have access to, uh, to electricity to charge at your at your place of residence, that's almost always going to be cheaper. If you're able to charge at a workplace during the day over a longer period of time, that's also almost always going to be cheaper. So I think that there's a, because the only place that almost any of us fill up our cars is at gas stations, we think of, it's kind of hard to make that mental leap to remember that with an EV, you're often going to be doing most of your charging somewhere else. It might be your home, might be your workplace, somewhere where the car is going to sit for a while. And so while the visibility piece, I think it's true. It's a good point that, you know, it, it, it doesn't help from a kind of marketing perspective that when people think about EVs, they don't see the, you know, 40 foot sign 
promoting the prices. But I also think it kind of speaks to a, a deeper dynamic here, which is that we have to think differently about how we refill these vehicles. Well, sure. Uh, but I mean, I, I think the response to that would be, we are the converted, right? Like we already know that. And I think most people, once they live with an EV for a couple of weeks, you know, even if it was a plug-in hybrid, you know, we got our plug-in hybrid for the first time, like two years ago. And it was real quick. We figured out, man, we're almost never getting gas for this thing. We'll put gas in it twice a year, you know? And I think for most people, it's that kind of realization, but you don't, I think maybe the mainstream buyer isn't going to trust that until they experience it for themselves. And, and you're absolutely right. We have changed our way of thinking and we think of opportunity charging and incremental charging and things like that as a matter of course, because we're in that world and we're driving it. I, I just, you know, I think of like my uncle and his Ford F-250 talking about electric cars, like, well, where would I charge it? It's like telling him you're going to charge it at home. He don't understand that because there's no gas station at his house. So he doesn't have that analogy. And I think that, you know, that kind of visibility is important, but to your point, it goes away because once you've owned the EV for a week or two, you realize you don't need to be constantly looking for fuel and being aware of where you can get it because you just wake up every morning and have a full tank and you just don't even think about it or maybe not a full tank, I guess a full battery. Cause I still think of it in those terms, right? I think of the battery as a tank. I think about, well, I'm half full, half full of what mm -hmm. you know, electrical charge, you know, that's just the language that we use is, is still kind of antiquated. I heard someone the other day, I was riding with him in their Tesla and he said, I'm going to hit the gas and pass this guy. And it's like, all right, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, it's an interesting dynamic that, that, uh, I think that most people don't aren't yet familiar with, but ultimately will uh, work in the favor of EVs for a lot of people. You know, again, if you're able to charge at home, which not everyone is, and it's important for us to remember that. And you know, another piece of this that we're thinking a lot about and trying to work with others and with policymakers on is how do you kind of crack this problem of, of charging and multi-unit dwellings, right? Because we need to be or providing more of that. I mean, Chicago has a ton of street parking. How do you do that? You know, you can't run a yeah. cords to every car. Yeah, that's true. Some, some cities have gone with um, adding charging stations to light posts, actually. So using the- I saw that in Seattle. Yeah, that's really neat. Do you mm -hmm. feel like, you know, one of the criticisms that I heard coming out of Atlanta was that the public charging stations are getting vandalized. The cables are being cut. People are taking the copper for the raw materials. Do you think that something like an in-ground charging solution, like something like the wireless charging, is that something that's kind of too pie in the sky or are you seeing anything that seems realistic, like that might be a solution down the road? I just saw an interesting presentation and panel discussion on this. I was a, a few weeks ago up in Portland, Oregon at the fourth roadmap conference, which uh, I, I was, I saw that too. That's why, that's why it's top of mind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Anyways, great conference for, for anyone who is interested annually up there in Portland, but yeah, there was a, a presentation from a, one of the leading companies that's, that's providing those sorts of wireless charging solutions. I, you know, I think that it's something that, to, to keep an eye on. I think it will definitely have applications in the future. I don't think that that's um, 
you know, technology that we're going to see kind of crop its head up and then and then go away. But I do question what the use cases and the applications will be. And it's not totally clear to me, you know, for example, I don't think it's going to make sense for people that are trying to charge their car overnight in their single family home with a garage to go through the effort of, of you know, putting that in place in the basement of the garage. No, no, I, the I garage. think it's buses, it's city buses. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be- Semi-trucks that be, have predictable routes where they're going to have dwell time at a certain spot. You know, great example that I saw was somebody drew this out as, you know, the Port of LA, which actually the Port of LA already, or uh, the Port of Long Beach rather, already has drayage trucks running on an internal route over these, and while they're waiting to get loaded, they're charging on these wireless mm-hmm. pads. So it seems to be working. I know it's a pilot program, so it's hard to know, you know, what kind of um, efficacy it's going to have. And obviously we're still, like you said, wild, wild west. We're still in the early days of this technology. But I, I do see that as something that is, I don't want to say good. I want to say interesting. Like, I, I think that's something where as we start talking about moving people out of this model of owning cars and driving their car where they go. And we start talking about public transportation, European kind of city models. And, you know, as America matures as a nation and our cities mature, they do start to resemble the older cities in Europe and people do get around more on bicycles and walking and things like that. So I I think that in, in that kind of universe, there might be a better application for it, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think at the end of the day, you know, anything that we can do that's going to reduce the fossil fuel use and the burning of fossil fuels is just beneficial, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. You know, we, we are doing bad stuff, right? We're burning oil and making fires and wildfires are a real thing and heat is a real thing and traffic and congestion is all real stuff, regardless of how you feel about you know, even people who think that global warming is a hoax, and I don't want to get into that topic, but even people who think it's a hoax, you don't want to be sitting in traffic and stinking of diesel fumes, right? You want to have a better, nicer, cleaner experience. So I I, I do think that the work you're doing is is incredibly invaluable. I I am going to have to stop us eventually. I could talk to you all day, but I, I, what I will say is this, I'll invite you out. You know, we do have our industry day in Austin. I'll I'll give you some information on that as well. I definitely want to invite you guys and maybe you personally there out to kind of talk to us a little bit more about what you guys are doing and how we can, you know, through an industry wide sort of effort, kind of support what you're doing and how we can benefit from what you're doing. And yeah, just kind of give you the floor, any closing thoughts and we'll go from there. Well, thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Always nice talking to you. And just on the last piece you were saying with, you know, getting together with industry folks, I think that this is one of the areas that that RMI is quite strong in. You know, I think that we very much take the perspective that in order to solve the very complex and pressing issues that we all face when it comes to climate and clean energy and reducing transportation sector emissions, there are many stakeholders involved and therefore we need to talk to many stakeholders. And we do a lot of convenings and we do a lot of outreach to try to, you know, not only do our kind of deep research and analysis from a, you know, data analytics perspective to inform policy, but also to make sure that we're talking to the, to the right people and getting a diversity of perspectives. So appreciate the invitation and, and maybe we can see you in Austin later in the year. <laughs> maybe I'll just leave it at that. Appreciate you having me on and for all the listeners, thanks for, thanks for listening and check us out if you're interested in our work.
Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.